Welcome to 7 in 7, the bonus spin-off from The Social Minute, looking at the film 7 in 7 awkwardly cut up pieces. I am your host Darren, and joining me today to talk about uh, this particular piece uh, is Ollie Brady. Hello, Ollie. Hey, Darren. And Sarah Ifdecker. Hello, Sarah. Hello. And today uh, we are going to be talking about, um, I mean, mostly sloth, although <laughs> there's a lot of stuff before this and after this. Um, if you are following along at home, then we are at 45.54 to 1 hour and 20 for people who are in um, PAL regions. Or for NTSC, it is 47.44 to 1.23.35. Um, and we start with um, possibly the cutest picture in the entire film, which is Brad Pitt asleep on Morgan Freeman. Um, having been exhausted by all of their fun from the day before. Um, they get woken up by Arlie Ermey, and he gives us a very detailed description of our potential killer, um, although the detectives both don't think that it fits with um, you know, what they know about the killer so far. Um, and then we get the SWAT raid on the house, um, and then obviously we find out that Sloth is the next victim. Um, although at this point, he's not a victim because he's still alive, as uh, the SWAT team find out <laughs> in a uh, kind of very shocking and frightening scene. Um, and then, you know, we, we kind of go to the hospital where Sloth is barely being kept alive. Um, and then um, following on from that, we get a brief scene where William and Tracy uh, meet and uh, they talk about, you know, Somerset's previous love life and obviously the fact that she is pregnant, something obviously which is being set up for later on in the film. Um, and then we have a conversation um, with, uh, <laughs> with where, where uh, Brad Pitt um, doesn't understand how to say Marquis de Sade and thinks that bondage is something, you know, different. Um, and then we we finally arrive at John Doe's apartment. There's a chase uh, and then we go back to John Doe's apartment and we break in there and we finish the scene after the phone call. Um, and everyone is basically, you know, going back to work. Uh, I think is how we finish the whole thing with uh, Somerset telling everyone to do that. Um, as we go through this, obviously, I'll point out the differences that were in the original script. Um, the first being that the victim was originally, you know, called Zero and not Victor. And I, I don't, I don't know why they changed it. You know, yeah, it's a really weird name for a, for the guy. But um, so uh, that's, you know, that's pretty much the whole thing that we're covering. I had definitely not remembered that he'd been torturing this dude for an entire year was uh, one of the kind of first things that I was like, wait, I'm sorry, what? Um... <laughs> and also it's worth saying the reaction of the, the actors playing the SWAT officers who enter, apart from John C. McGinley, uh, who is playing a guy named California, though his name is never mentioned <laughs> in the entire script and he barely says anything. Uh, originally, he had the speech that Arlie Ermey gives about, you know, the, the background of, uh, of Victor and, you know, the fact that, you know, his parents were Southern Baptist and all kinds of weird details in there. Um, obviously, the main connection being that his his lawyer was Elliot Gould, the previous victim. That's the kind of big right. connection there. Um, but the the actors who were in that room, they weren't told that the the guy playing Sloth was um, was actually, you know, like an actor. They thought it was just some kind of like, you know, puppet or something or just like, you know, like, a, you know, just like a makeup rig. They like they didn't realize there was a guy in there. And then as they as that guy approaches and he's like, you know, um, <laughs> like literally kind of being like, I'm glad you're dead. And he kind of moves that guy reacting and the guy behind him who kind of like almost throws up. Those are both real reactions because they didn't know that guy was going to do that. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, you know, David Fincher was, was kind of just messing with them a little bit, which I thought was quite funny. Um, and the guy who plays Sloth, um, 
when he came to the audition, he, you know, obviously they auditioned for a specific body type mm-hmm. and he was only 96 pounds when he auditioned. Oh, wow. And it, and as a joke, David Fincher said, yeah, I, you know, I think this guy's right for the role, but, you know, maybe he should lose a bit more weight. And when he turned up on set, he'd lost six more pounds. Oh, my um, God. For... <laughs> yeah, so he, he, he was very, very thin. Uh, and obviously, to give the effect of his face being kind of sunken, they put in like a gigantic set of teeth that makes, you know, it kind of gives the effect that everything's sunken. But yeah, this is, I would say, out the, like the whole of, you know, Seven obviously has kind of like the feeling, I would say, of kind of like a horror film or something like that. Um, and I think this is kind of the most horrific scene. Like the fact that the guy's been tortured for like an entire year, like you say, yeah, like that's, you know, that's kind of terrifying. But then also just the look of how they did the makeup on the guy and everything is kind of, it's kind of crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I don't know. You stick a pair of teeth in like that in someone in... 2019, get him to sing a Freddie Mercury song and you give him an Oscar, Darren. Yeah, I, I, I think the guy playing Sloth should have been nominated for something. Uh, quite frankly, um, you know. The, but I, I just, I don't know. I like out of all the, out of all the sins, I'd say this is. I mean, it's hard to say that this is like my favorite. But I think the, the, the build up to it, like the kind of, because it feels kind of like a, you know, the kind of cliched kind of like action film where they're all. All the SWAT officers are like they've got so many SWAT officers, it's kind of mm-hmm. ridiculous. And all the cars kind of driving out the garage at high speed, and you know the fact that Arlie Ermey, who you know is wonderful in this film, just the fact that he gives this speech where he keeps saying stuff, and it like he's walking so far ahead of most of the SWAT officers, I don't think they're even hearing what he's saying. Um, but he just keeps on going, you know, like reeling off like the crimes of this guy, and you know the fact that his lawyer was like terrible, like em- like he just keeps right. building it up and just going and really kind of you're like by the time they're leaving, you're like this guy's like a, you know a guy who would have been a convicted pedophile, but his lawyer got him off, which means of course now we hate the guy who you know just had to cut yeah who just right. had Straight to cut away, a pound yeah. of flesh out. Yep. So this is making us hate two people, and it's almost putting us on the side of John Doe and being like yeah these guys should be dead yeah these people are terrible yeah um so i I kind of love all that because that's that's kind of something you would see in any action film of like this is the guy we're going to get this is what we're going to do like it's all kind of very uh, kind of you know almost one would say rote but the way david fincher does it is it's like yeah but you think that this is going to be like a raid on some guy who's like you know a murderous crazy person but it's not it's a raid on a guy who basically cannot move and who you know like the doctor says if you shine a flashlight in his eyes he'll probably die um and it's it's so weird but yeah i just love the whole setup and all the you know like the little kind of you know what are they called the air fresheners just hanging down from the roof like the whole set design and that oh, the little the little fresh pine trees yeah or whatever they that, are. that whole set design yeah. is so amazing yeah there, there, there was a couple of things weirded me out about this number one john doe has been 27 steps ahead of the cops the entire way through and when they find the fingerprint it's the first fuck up now obviously we know he didn't fuck up he he planted it in order to set them up but none of the cops at any stage go hmm this seems a little bit too easy for us (laughs) to find this like there's been literally no trace of any of the other things but suddenly we find a perfect fingerprint that gives us the full address of a guy who's a convicted pedophile let's get in there uh the other thing that jumped out at me was uh i know orly ermy from um full metal jacket right which means that in my head, that man is constantly swearing. 
Yeah. He's constantly shouting. He's constantly <laughs> aggro. He's constantly angry. And I find his turn in this almost delightful. Like he describes the SWAT members as ladies and germs. Oh, yeah, yeah. At one point. <laughs> as opposed to, as opposed to you scrot licking motherfucker or whatever, like, which is what you would expect uh, yeah, him I, to do in his previous characters. Uh, right. I will tell you this. Uh, many, many years ago, when I was at university, like literally the first like website that I ever made, which is like uh, GeoCities or something, at the very top, like the header. The Wait, you made GeoCities? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a GeoCities website. <laughs> oh, the, top, the top headline that I had at the top was Ladies and Germs. That's literally what I put up there. Because <laughs> I love that saying so much. Um, yeah. But yeah, it is so... And the weird thing is it's kind of... It's very kind of like country. Because the fact that he's like, you know, mm-hmm. his mommy and daddy like didn't spank him enough and all this. Like this whole... There's a whole kind of thing of like where... The, like Arlie Ermey sounds like this is his best mate. Who kind of you know? Yeah, exactly. No, like the whole yeah. the whole speech is so kind of weird, um, and and then kind of like he, he you know as as he's going on like you're like how does he know all this stuff? How does he like the only important detail is that his lawyer was Elliot Gould who got him off. He isn't a convicted paedophile. He he was got off from be, like he didn't get convicted on the technicality. That's the like and, that's what you meant to that's yeah. why you meant to hate Elliot Gould even more now because he's getting you know pedophiles off on technicalities as well that's always that's always that was a big thing I think in like 90s you know law things was like oh yeah they would have arrested this guy but you know someone didn't read him his Miranda rights so even though he murdered people in front of everyone he gets to go free on a technicality and that was like a really big thing in like 90s thrillers was always like these technicalities that people got off on right and it also it just seemed very odd in this whole thing because they emphasize the fact that his lawyer got him off on this technicality so in that case what is his motivation to murder his lawyer yeah yeah that's the weird thing like why don't they think this into it's like oh this guy is totally fucked up he killed somebody that he knew who also helped to save him also uh every time darren says eli gould i think he's saying elliot gould <laughs> and it's it's really getting in my house like going elliot gould was in this movie what was i watching uh-huh. yeah eli gould was the, the lawyer yeah that was, that had just what's what's funny as well is in the script it wasn't gould it was gold which obviously is coding it as being you know a, a jewish lawyer as well so which again, which I mean, not Gould really kind of is too. Gould is yeah, that much but, better. Yeah. yeah, I was just about to say, Sarah will be able to tell us that it's not that much of a, a coding to hide it. Like. Well, I, I wouldn't say hiding it, but just in the script, going with gold was a bit more kind of obvious than gold, which is a little a kind of at least it, they kind of toned it down just a little bit. Right, well, but yeah, still, still not that toned down no. because I don't know. At least as a Jewish person. Uh, <laughs> Eli Gould, I just immediately heard that. I'm like, wow, okay. So uh, we are definitely saying that he's uh, Jewish and that they have the Merchant of Venice reference. She's definitely not joking about it either, Darren, because the first thing she did as soon as she got to it was, yeah, so the uh, the lawyer was definitely Jewish. <laughs> I was like, all right. Yeah, they, uh, well, I, it's worth saying as well, the guy who played, uh, the guy who played Victor uh, is an actor um, called... Um, I'm trying to remember his name, Michael Reed McKay, um, and he has mm-hmm. he has worked since Seven. Like this isn't like his only like role or anything. Um, he was actually the 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 smaller version of Bane in Batman and Robin before he became uh, Jeep Swenson. <laughs> oh, the big yeah. Before yeah. he got filled with drugs, he was he was uh, he was that. And then most recently, um, he was also he was also in uh, X Two. He was um, what's his face's son, William Stryker's son. Uh, in like the wheelchair, oh, yeah, oh. yeah, in the, yeah. yeah. Oh, cool. um, and then he was in Insidious Chapter Three as the man who can't breathe, which basically involved him doing the same thing he did in this film of lying in a bed and kind of wheezing. Um, but he's still, you know, twenty something years later, very very slim. 
Um, so you know he gets he only gets cast in certain roles. Uh, but obviously, if you remember him in X Men in X Two, like he is, you know, like he's still super skinny in that as well. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Like he had the makeup as well to to make him into Sloth um, took fourteen hours, which is kind of ridiculous. <laughs> Basically, they had to always shoot his scenes kind of like last thing of a day, you know, like and they could only do them like once or twice. Uh, obviously, David yeah. Fincher notorious for doing hundreds of takes. So, uh, you know, Sarah, yeah. When you, because you you know more about Seven Deadly Sins and all this sort of stuff, because you you're much more of a religion expert than I am, and uh, and I'm assuming more than Darren is. Darren's one of those English lads, like you know, you know, they don't have any. I, w- I went to Catholic there... school for thirteen years, Ollie, and you live in Ireland. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, listen, I get it. We uh, listen. You think that we've got you know? I I do a podcast with Sarah. Um, I can, I'm one hundred percent certain that even my my entire life being spent in an Irish Catholic institutions which i have sarah knows more about catholicism than i do sarah, i do spend you... a lot of time as a jew teaching uh teaching christianity to christians <laughs> she does now sarah when you hear sloth when you think of the sin of sloth is the transformation of victor into completely emaciated like absolutely wasted away person is that what you think of when you think of sloth because it's it's 100 percent not what comes into my head when I think of the sin of sloth. No, the chain to the bed part seems very much like a kind of fitting punishment for sloth, but the combination of that with also the kind of forced starvation, unless I guess the idea behind it is that this person would in theory be too slothful to even properly care for themselves, even if they could and were not literally chained to a bed. Yeah, see, that's that's the thing is, in all the rest of the things, obviously John Doe's motivation is fucked up and the way he's punishing these people for perceived crimes or in the case of this person an actual crime but the fact that each of the other sins and the way they 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 manifest themselves in his tortures and his murders or whatever they fit what i imagine somebody with lust would go or how i imagine somebody with wrath would go i imagine somebody with sloth not to be emaciated to actually be the opposite, to be just so lazy that they're just putting on weight, almost the way he has gluttony done in the end. I don't, I don't see them as, like, I don't see, this person is not being slothful. Their sin in real life wasn't being slothful. That was the other thing that I found odd, is that I didn't see how their sinfulness was sloth as opposed to... Lust. Lust, yeah. Or, I don't know, also a drug dealer, so maybe greed, I don't know. And but Lust or greed, both of those make perfect sense for that particular character but to describe him as sloth and therefore i'm going to chain him to the bed give him just enough food to keep him alive but he's not going to be able to move so he's going to atrophy and eventually die like that's that's not a slothful death that's a i am torturing this person and the guy's a child molester he deserved it like as john (laughs) mcginley's character said you deserve to die i'm glad you're dead or whatever but and then, and then it still he, doesn't fit in with the rest of John Doe's master plan. I mean, I and the thing is as well, the amount of effort John Doe had to put into this of like, 
finding a place to kind of like keep him for a year and always, you know making sure the rent was paid so that nobody got suspicious like the amount of effort he's put in like it's the exact opposite of sloth it's way it's like way too much effort quite frankly for, like right that he has been very much the opposite of sloth yeah so i don't know um, if it's like just, it's meant to be ironic yeah. like <laughs> i i am the opposite of sloth right. and this person is now sloth like it just it seems really weird but yeah um although it is like the most effective of the, of the sins i would say like um, oh yeah, definitely. definitely oh yeah. You. Sarah, when um, when when sloth is discussed as a as one of the seven deadly sins, is it physical sloth they're talking about, or more the, your failure to do your religious duty? If that makes sense. It's some of each. I mean, so it's uh, I would say it's not necessarily like just being lazy in the sense that you would have it today. Um, that it's a kind of failure to kind of maybe pursue various kinds of opportunities, including opportunities to, you know, be good with Jesus. Mm-hmm. Well, in that um, case, I am very slothful. It's me, <laughs> me and the big J are on the outs. But he seems, if anything, actively pursuing opportunities to do evil. So, which is not, which would not fall under sloth. Yeah, I, I, I think maybe uh, John Doe struggled to find the most like a way to make sloth like a sin that he could manifest, and so he just went with like, yeah, I guess chaining the guy to a bed and starving him for years probably the closest. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll kind of, I'll, I'll kind of call a mulligan on this one. Admittedly, this is the one that he's he's planned the longest <laughs> as well. So like, and he's put the most right. work. Yeah. Into, so like, yeah. maybe a year ago, he kind of had a more clear idea of like, once people see this, they'll understand sloth. And then he's got to a year later, and he's like, you know what? I had a great idea, and I think I've kind of, <laughs> I kind of messed it up in execution. I, you know, it happens to the, it happens to the best of us. You know, we all think, oh, I've got this great idea to do this, and then you get to the end, and you're like, ah. Oh. Yeah, this set of shelves doesn't look as I imagined it would be once I've finished. So I imagine it would right. be. Just could you imagine, right? When John Doe hands himself in and everyone's like, wow, what amazing the way you planned those murders. But what the fuck was that? <laughs> what, what, what I was kind of wish Brad Pitt had called him on that. Yeah, yeah. He's like, look, you, th- you think this is great, but sloth, what was going on there? And then he would have at least gone, look, <laughs> yeah. I hold up my bloody hands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it wasn't completely what I was, you know, I, I started it a year ago on a whim and things just kind of went off track a little bit. Um, you know, I had I had so other I've, people to murder and I, I got to admit, it took my eye off the ball. Um, so, Places to go, people to murder. Yeah, uh, it's I think. Oh, sorry. I was going to say oh, it's worth there. mentioning that um, that sloth is also seen as uh, one of the five hindrances in Buddhism as well. Um, and I'm, I'm looking, I'm looking for someone to kind of remake seven, but like in a Bollywood style using the hindrances rather than the seven deadly sins. Um, you know, that would be really interesting. Yeah. Unfortunately, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, Sarah, do, uh, in the Jewish religion, is there equivalent of the seven deadly sins or is it just like getting caught is the only, the only bad one? There's not really a like list of seven deadly sins like that. Like that's not as much of a Jewish thing. I mean, there's obviously understandings of various things that are sinful, but in general, it's kind of a broader, okay, I mean, you're supposed to observe the commandments. I suppose in a sense, breaking any of the 10 commandments would be considered, you know, worse than certain other things. Um, But there isn't that kind of like list of sins as opposed to, you know, commandments that include both things to do and things not to do. Darren, Mm -hmm. you mentioned earlier that uh, this is the most effective murder. And I I agree with you. The segment we watched does have the worst murder 
in the entire movie but I don't think it's what happens to Sloth I think it's the acting Gwyneth Paltrow displays when she's talking to Morgan Freeman in the diner. Well, let's let's not let's because... not jump to that because I've said before that this is this this film and Twelve Monkeys were the ones that made me accept that Brad Pitt was a good actor. And I think he doesn't. There's a yeah. nice bit of business as they're on the way where Morgan Freeman is like, you know, he asks him. He says, Did, "Have you ever drawn your weapon?" And he's like, three times in thirty-four years." Um, which is also a nice way of confirming, you know, that basically he's retiring because he's got 35 years on his pension. And, you know, that's so like yeah. it's it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a nice bit of exposition that they throw in there. And then Brad Pitt kind of does this whole this kind of story about, you know, oh, I had to pull my gun once. This guy shot at us and and he can't. The guy gets shot in the yeah, arm. And he, what was his and name? He can't remember the, the name of the office. Yeah. yeah. And that wasn't that wasn't in the original script. That story was kind of in the original script. But the way that Brad Pitt delivers it and kind of shortens it to the, him just being like, I can't remember the name of this guy who got shot with me. And, you know, this you would think this is a significant event, like him pulling his gun for the first time. And yet he still he like it bugs him. And I like that little bit of kind of business that Brad because it's not really about Morgan Freeman saying, you know, I haven't really drawn my gun and, you know, cause his character's kind of firmly established, but it's a nice bit of kind of character work for Brad Pitt being like, you know, like getting frustrated that he can't remember the name of this guy and like, you know, and, yeah. and also kind of emphasizing the fact that this is not like, you know, I don't know, lethal weapon four or whatever. Like these people aren't going to be shooting anyone in sight. Like the amount of gunfire in this film is very limited. Um, you know, to obviously a scene later on in this clip, but like, you know, the amount of shots mm-hmm. fired in this entire film of, you know, very, very small compared to, you know, most blockbusters where people were literally shooting like left, right and centre. So I think that's a nice little that's, kind of... That's something yeah. that actually jumped out at me today when I was watching it, is in the scene that you're talking about where John Doe shoots at them, there's a couple of times where Brad Pitt has a chance for a shot but doesn't take it and and every time he doesn't take it it makes perfect sense that he doesn't but in my head i'm still right. i'm still on the line and go oh why didn't he pull the trigger there yeah like why didn't why didn't he trance his arm at a shot and it there's even a scene where morgan freeman now we'll get to what i said to sarah this morning and what i think every <laughs> single time i watch it mm-hmm. there's a scene where morgan freeman comes through a door and john doe is at the other end of the corridor and he doesn't even think about taking a shot or firing one off of them and it's it's very yeah exactly he's too old for that shit but it's very noticeable to me that when you're if you were watching any other director and any other cop based procedural even an episode of svu which isn't about shooty shooty antics they'll still fire off a shot in those sorts of situations but it makes perfect logical sense like like Brad Pitt doesn't fire a gun because there's other people in the hall. He doesn't fire a gun because he's at a really weird angle and the guy's running away from him. So he's not going to, like, what's the point? Like, um, yeah. yeah, so I, I, I genuinely appreciate the lack of gunplay in this sort of movie. Yeah, and also as an American, um, the fact that he behaves in that particular way is also something that makes a lot of sense given that all of the people involved, uh, both the bystanders and the criminal, are all white people. I have a feeling that if that was not true, there would be more gunfire. Oh, he'd have been blasting up and down that time. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and and interestingly, this is the only part in the film where we actually get some... Um, where where the where the camera goes off the rails and it's it's on... Um, it, we get some shaky cam. We get a little bit of steady cam action. Mm-hmm. And there's also one tiny POV shot, which is as Brad Pitt is... You know, he's chasing down John Doe and he gets to, like, this apartment and you see these kids and they just point at the bathroom... <laughs> And, and he's uh, 
it's out that window. That's one of the yeah. points he doesn't fire his gun that I And it switches to very quickly, yeah. only for about four seconds, to a POV shot as if you're Brad Pitt walking into the bathroom just so he can see yeah. where John Doe is. And then there's like a, a shot fired and then he kind of backs off and then he you know, re- returns to chasing him. But that's literally the only POV shot in the entire film. Um, yeah, but we've we've skipped a couple of scenes to get to that point. We have. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> It's just it jumped out because you were talking about the shooting. Yeah. But um, yeah, can we talk about Gwyneth Paltrow murdering acting? I here's the thing. I uh, I don't I don't think it's as bad as you're saying. I you know. Darren, it is. Hold on a second. I'm I'm gonna do her line delivery on this line. This one line of. Okay, go for it. Um, sorry. What's what's uh Brad Pitt's first name again? David. 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 He's like. David and I are. We're gonna have a baby. That's how she delivers that line to Morgan Freeman. And you guys can't see me just because the camera's not working. I looked away exactly the way she did. I looked down at my left shoulder and then looked back up to go, going to have a baby. Oh my God. Come on, yeah. You're much better now. I don't think she's a terrible actress. I, I like her. I like her in lots of things. She's brilliant in Sense and Sensibility. This, this one particular scene in the diner is atrocious. I'm with you. I also kind of hate her character, to be honest. Um, I mean, not like I hate, like as in like the character is a person that if I met her in real life, I would enthusiastically dislike her. Yeah. Um, I think like the first moment was that at some point, like they walk into her house and she's like, hello, men. And I'm like, "Ugh, really? That's what you're going to say. <laughs> um, and then just the whole thing she's in. I don't know what as as I was watching the movie, I was kind of reading the city as being New York. And I'm just watching this whole scene and I'm like, ugh, you moved from upstate New York to actual New York and you hate <laughs> New York City and want to go back to upstate New York? God, what's wrong with you? Uh, well, she can't get it. The, the, the teaching climate's really bad, Sarah. <laughs> I, th- I think... And then he's like, why don't you try a public school? And she's like, eh, it's like, there's a lot of good yeah. public schools. And <laughs> also maybe you could like, may work at a public, or like, or there's a lot of good, there's a lot of actually good public magnet schools. There's a lot of good private schools. Or you could work at a regular public school and like maybe actually make a difference. But her her face when he says, what about private school? is like, ugh, <laughs> ugh. Like, what? Right. Yeah, private school, ugh. Like, there are some good New York private schools that pay very well. I think the issue she has is she's in the scene with Morgan Freeman, um, probably at his peak, um, not as lazy as he is these days. He he seems to have fallen into the trap as, of pretty much a, a number of actors from the kind of 80s and early 90s, where he seems to have given up on actually doing any acting and just does himself in every film now. Whereas in this film, he's act, like the character of, you know, Somerset, Detective Somerset, is a, is a distinct character that's not just... Um, you know, Morgan Freeman doing his voice and, and kind of everybody just being like, oh, it's Morgan Freeman doing his voice. Um, you know, so I think she's at a disadvantage in that she's basically up against Morgan Freeman in the scene. Uh, she sure. doesn't do too bad in the scenes with Brad Pitt because obviously Brad Pitt's a little easier for her to kind of act off. Um, and I think they do have a nice chemistry. Obviously, you know, they had a chemistry in real life at this particular point in time. So, um, but, you know, I think she's just at a disadvantage being in the scene by herself with, with Morgan Freeman. And the scene, yes, the scene with Morgan Freeman here, and this is something I I don't think would fly in twenty nineteen, and, and maybe Sarah will agree with me or disagree with me. I'm not sure, but um, if you tell another character in a movie, we're gonna have a baby. Sorry, <laughs> we're gonna have a baby, because uh, you have to say it the way she does. Uh, 
And then his first instinct is to fly into a story about how he forced his long-term partner to have an abortion. And he's uh-huh. never regretted it. But she's like, we're going to have a baby. And he's like, well, if you do have an abortion, don't tell him about it. Where does he get that from? I've got to admit that like, I feel like there's so many movies now that really like dance around the question of abortion in ways that I find very irritating. Like that they pretend it's not even a possibility. And I do appreciate that it at least is brought up as a real option that she could take. But it's the fact that she hasn't mentioned anything about this. And then Morgan <laughs> no, Freeman's like, true. what about, did you ever think about an abortion? Just, <laughs> I'm just saying, I know you two are a young couple and you have a nice enough apartment. And you, you, you know, there's no private schools. Eee, private schools. What <laughs> private schools you get a job in? But also... I forced the woman to have an abortion once and I don't regret it at all. So don't ever tell. Like, what is your logic here? I think in in fairness to the script, this is basically three different scenes that got compressed down. So there's part part of this scene was going to be in a bookstore, which is the kind of stuff where uh, she's talking about her job. Then there was another scene that was set like in an abandoned church. Again, I don't know why, but there's so many abandoned church (laughs) scenes in the script, uh, which is the story about, you know, which is when she says she's pregnant. And then there was another scene, which was, I think, in a cafe, which is obviously where, you know, this location ends up being, um, which was about his kind of, you know, his his story. You know, she asked him about his you know previous relationships and stuff like that. So all three of those scenes just got squished down into this. So it does seem to take a bit of a sharp turn halfway through the, the scene where she's like, I'm right. having a baby. And he's like, yeah, I remember when I had an abortion with one of my previous partners. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, um, but at the same time, I think, uh, you know, bearing in mind that this is obviously, you know, that when this was filmed in 1994, um, you know, it, effectively it's set that year. Um, you know, the fact that he's talking about long ago, he was in this relationship and, you know, the, the way that like, you know, they kind of drifted apart and, you know, they almost had a kid like we to me, it gives the impression that he's talking about something that was kind of in the mid seventies. So it would have been like a bit of a bigger deal, um, you know, post Roe yeah, versus Wade to go through. Yeah. So it would have been like a bit. And you know, so I, I think that's, you know, and I mean, you know, there's also the kind of undercurrent of, you know, black fathers and whatever going on there as well. So there's a, I think there's a few things in the script that were in other scenes that kind of got missed out. And like his yeah. kind, like his whole kind of life, all of Somerset's life now just seems to revolve around, you know, uh, playing, you know, playing darts with his penknife and, you know, listening to a metronome. Like that seems to be his entire personal life. Um, but this kind of, all, there was a lot more in the script of like his, his private life and, you know, how he used to be, you know, with these, with this person. And like, there was a lot more of that. So it's kind of got a little bit squished down in the script and just put into this one scene. Um, and also the excuse that she doesn't know any, anybody else in the city is kind of like, and you know, you pick Detective Somerset to be the one that you talk to, like try and meet, try right. and meet some people your own age or something, like talk to somebody else, like maybe meet some people in your building or like it just if if it, try to join a book club, like yeah, like do, do something else, like if, if to just kind of bring in you know your husband's partner for this kind of discussion seems a little bit but like, again in the in the original script this was kind of a lot more spread out and there was a lot more for them to kind of mm-hmm. work with whereas you know they had andrew kevin walker on on set to rewrite stuff you know and they it wasn't like rewritten every day but there was a lot of stuff where david finch was like i'm not going to shoot all these scenes <laughs> just give it me one like <laughs> just get it down to one scene so we can get in and out um, one one thing we, we, we just want I just wanted to address which is not connected to this scene but it is connected to the previous scene um, Victor's apartment building is absolutely beautiful I know they did a great job of making it look ramshackle yeah. 
But as they're walking up these wonderful spiral staircases full of beautiful hardwood and they come down this corridor and it looks like there's three apartments on the entire row and I'm like holy shit this is beautiful. and then when they go into his apartment it's it's like three rooms and there's a corridor and all and I'm like this guy who's like yeah he's living in filth and squalor but that's a gorgeous place John Doe has dropped some serious money on kind of keeping him alive for a year like that's not a cheap place to rent yeah. right um Right. I mean, it's part of, you know, and it's also part of the long standing filmic tradition of making apartments in northeastern cities that are like supposed to be shit apartments actually look way nicer than your actual like low rent apartment in either New York or Philadelphia for that matter. Yeah. Um, although interestingly enough, uh, you know, something obviously mentioned in previous scenes, but um, the entire of, um, you know, the, 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 the apartment that Brad Pitt and Gwyneth Paltrow live in. Uh, was a set and it was on uh, these rails that allowed the entire crew to shake it whenever they had the trains going past. So that's <laughs> that's not like a, a shaky camera effect. That's literally they had the cameras locked down and they just shook the entire set. Uh, and apparently they huh. would bring people on tours of the set and they would just start the kind of earthquake effect off and people would just be like, what's going on? And then so they did it for fun. Um, it was a fun set, you know. Um so, yeah, I mean, the weirdest thing of this whole thing is when we finally get Victor to the hospital and the doctor has this kind of very serious conversation about how, you know, he's bitten off his own tongue, his muscles have atrophied. <laughs> Obviously, his hand his hand has been cut off so that the not only that, but when they when they sprayed it with the, you know, the, the stuff to find the, the fingerprints, um, it said, help me. It didn't say I've killed yep. this guy like. <laughs> Right. And also it was so obviously set up in such a way that they were supposed to find it. I feel like the most likely explanation is that it was going to lead you to another victim and not actually to the Yeah, in, your fa- in all fairness to both Somerset and Mills, as they're on the way, they do both say, this doesn't sound like our guy. Like, the, the setup yeah. that's yeah. being given is like, this is this is not John. They haven't called him John Doe yet, but like, this is not John Doe who did this. Like, this this My- guy doesn't sound like a crazed killer who's got a you know a methodical plan. This just you know it just doesn't fit the profile basically. Um, My favorite bit about the the hospital scene is when the doctor finishes describing all yeah. that he's gone through. Yeah. He's like, and he still has to go <laughs> to hell. Yeah, that is. <laughs> That is such a weird thing because it's like I, I in my notes I even said Doctor gets weirdly religious like you know he's, yeah it's like he's got yeah. to live in hell <laughs> yeah and he still has hell to face and it's like I'm I'm sorry are you editorializing on this guy's death what's got like what's going on like the guy had his hand chopped off he's bit right. off his own t- tongue his muscles have slowly atrophied for the whole year John Doe put a catheter in. Um, you know, like that, which I'm guessing he probably wasn't very gentle about that. Like this guy's endured a certain, like you even said, a flashlight can kill him at this moment in time. Like just seeing light will be enough to kill the guy. And then you're like, yeah, but no, he's I... still got to go to hell as well. It's like, hold on a second. <laughs> like, but this also, is this is much... my thing. Oh, sorry. Go on ahead, sir. Oh, I was just going to say also how much information did the doctor get about who this person was? Because unless they actually told him the whole backstory of how this person, okay, yes, he's a victim of a year of torture, but also is a... A child molester and a drug dealer. Yeah. But, like, I don't understand why the doctor would know that. <laughs> in which case, why is he assuming that this man is going to hell? It, it's, this, it's this weird thing that films do, which is they assume that a, a number of characters have the same information as a viewer. So, obviously, as a viewer, you're like, yeah, he's going to go to hell. Um, but obviously the doctor wasn't there for Arlie Ermey's, you know, although I'd love if it was like an extended cut of this film and you just see off the corner, this doctor's running along with the SWAT officers. Um, 
Yeah, getting, <laughs> getting the full information. But yeah, we know what Ali Ermi said, and apparently this doctor, this doctor does as well. So I, I don't know if when he was brought in, Ali Ermi was the one who was bringing him in and gave him the full speech again. <laughs> it was going on about this Southern Baptist upbringing, and the doctor's like, I don't know why you're telling me this stuff, but okay. Um, but can you imagine? Can you imagine that guy gets to hell? So Victor dies, or he gets to heaven, right? And he's at the pearly gates, and like Saint Peter there meets him, and he's like. Child molesting, not good. Selling drugs, not good. But what really, what's really stopping you getting in here is you lay on a bed for an entire <laughs> year, you slothful <laughs> bastard. You're going straight to hell and you're going to be tortured for eternity. And lay in bed for a year. That's so bad. That's one of the seven dead sins, you know. <laughs> yeah. Like... That's that's the thing that gets him into hell. Um, yeah, but I don't, the, doc, the doctor just being like, and he's still got hell to look forward to is is like such a weird kind of. If I was either one of those detectives, I'd be like, what? Hold on a second. What are you? What are you saying here? <laughs> like, <laughs> I'd bring him in for a murder investigation. Yeah, like hold on. This yeah, you seems like you've got a bit of a vengeance thing going on here. Uh, yeah. yeah, and then we we get kind of maybe the kind of the biggest shortcut that the film does, which is the whole library books thing. Um, which... <laughs> yes, I have a lot of thoughts about the library situation, um, especially because I just like I find it very entertaining that, uh, first of all, it's so many medieval books. It's very exciting. Yeah. I also found it very entertaining that um, at some point, you know, they're kind of going over the list of books. And I think Brad Pitt says something like, oh, like, you know, we're not going to really get our guy. We're just going to get a bunch of people like writing term papers about crime. I'm like, no, you're going to get a bunch of people who are writing their dissertations about medieval penitential <laughs> practices. Yeah. Uh, I, um, I I also love the fact that they, you know, I mean, they've made David Mills kind of super, like, not super dumb, but just constantly being shown up for being like a child next to, you know, the the kind of the dulcet tones of Morgan Freeman. And so the fact that he doesn't understand how to say Marquis de Sade. And when it's like on, you know, is it off human bondage? And he's like, and he has to go, not what you're thinking of. And it's like, <laughs> and I just. Yeah. And the other one is that he sort of starts to say uh, the writings of St. Thomas. Ach, uh, <laughs> yes. And I definitely did, in fact, sigh and say Aquinas, obviously, before Somerset. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's, why I, I, that's why I love it in, in this kind of moment is uh, Somerset is basically, you know, every person on Twitter correcting somebody. Where he's like Marquis de Sade, <laughs> he's like bondage. Bondage does not mean what you think it does. Uh, actually, it's pronounced Aquinas. Um, so, like, he's just correcting Brad Pitt. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I just kind of, I kind of love the whole, just this, this idea that you know, first of all, John Doe is keeping this guy alive in this fancy apartment, but he can't drop a bit of money on buying these books. He gets them from a library, <laughs> like, right. And that's the, that's how he's got caught as well. And this is he the guy he talks to um, that to get this information from, and then uh, Lucius Fox, Morgan Freeman himself, drops that the the FBI have been sneaking in and and watching what people have been getting from the libraries. And uh, Brad Pitt's like, "Is this illegal?" Brad Pitt says that after they've met a confidential uh, source of information in a diner. And bribed him. Uh-huh. And that's when Brad Pitt goes, is that illegal? <laughs> like, is that is that even legal? Like, of course it's not legal. But what did you think you were bribing this man for? To do something legal? Like, it doesn't make any sense. But my favourite bit about the whole thing, the guy they meet is um, is 
one of the dirty cops in Batman Begins. And he's in a lot of Nolan movies, right? Yeah. yeah. But he he's very good at playing sleazy characters. But he gives them the information, leads them to the one person who's been getting out the library books that they want, right? And they show up at his door. Now, this is this is something I need to ask you to you, right? So they show up on their door on his door and their plan is to knock on the door and have him answer. Right? Pretty much. Then John Doe shows up, fires his gun at them. Uh, they go through the whole chase sequence, which we can talk about in a second. He escapes and they come back to the door and Brad Pitt goes to open it and Somerset goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> we have no reason to be going through that door. No, no, they have they have and, no reason to be there. They can't explain how they got there. And that's that's the thing that Somerset's got. that's what I'm got. getting at, right. Yeah. We don't have a warrant. If they'd have knocked in the first place, like, so when they show up at John Doe's door and they just knock, what story were they going to give to John Doe? Because apparently being there in the first place and having him shoot a gun at them, run away from them, stops them. Like Somerset's like, oh no, you can't, we can't go in through that door. And Brad Pitt says, probable cause Yes, obviously probable cause because they just got fired on. And someone says like, no, 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 no. We had no reason to be there in the first place. Then what were you going to explain when you knocked on the door and he opened it and you see what's clearly a murder dungeon? Well, the thing, the thing is... Like, right, like what was their plan in terms of not having him get off as a techni- on a technicality? Exactly. What was your original plan going to be? How were you going to square the fact that you showed up and knocked on the murder suspect's door in the first place? I think when they knock on the door... At that point, then, like, because because they're police officers, they can knock on anyone's door. Like that, that's not a problem. Um, the issue that they have when John Doe goes is they can't they can't break in and they can't like just kick the door down, which obviously Brad Pitt just goes and does anyway. Uh, but that's, but that's because what I'm they at, they Darius. don't because the thing is they don't know that that's actually his apartment. Although John Doe has fired on them, that could be anybody who fired on them. But so this, but this is what I'm getting at. So what? Is, so there, like in Morgan Freeman's logic is, we showed up and it's okay for us just to knock on this door. They could easily just say they were canvassing the area and. Well, yeah, but that's what I'm saying. We were canvassing the area. Like it, it still and we works just exactly to the find same. The serial killer. We were yeah. just knocking on every door in the neighborhood and we but just found him. But that's what I'm getting at. Is that still works now as an excuse? We were canvassing the door and the guy walks around the corner and started firing on us. I so, well. Obviously, Richard Schiff at the end of the film could argue someone was firing on you. You didn't know it was the person who lived in that apartment because the door was never open. So, you know, you don't, you didn't know that that was the person that lived there. It could be anybody shooting on, at cops. You know, someone see a co- cops outside their door. They could be super sketchy anyway. It seems like it's a bit of a sketchy building anyhow. <laughs> um, so, you know, it, they've got no reason to believe that that's his apartment until they kick the door in and then they find out it is his apartment. Um, but... They have reason to believe the person who shot at them, it's their apartment, because we were standing outside this door, a guy walks out the corridor, stops, looks at us, and then fires his gun at us. He escaped. We came back to the apartment we had been at. We Like, how is it? Right. Like, surely you can explain to a judge, this is the door we were knocking on when we got fired on. We have reason to believe this is the apartment of the guy who fired us, not this is the apartment of the serial killer. But we want to get in and find out why this guy just fired bullets at us. Right, because if it wasn't his apartment, I mean, if it wasn't his apartment, then why wouldn't he have just... Why, why would he have fired? Right. I think the bigger jump in logic is they caught this guy from library rentals. That's that's the bigger jump in logic than what were they... Well, like? I'll tell you what put me off about yeah. this is, uh, and it's something I said to Sarah, and I think, and this is the masterstroke in the movie, 
the first time I saw this, and even today, watching because I watched the whole movie today, they are so good at setting you up to think that Morgan Freeman is John Doe, or is the killer, or is in some way connected to the killer. Because he, everything he says is complete admiration for the man. Like, he never condemns him. He never says, like, oh, that's disgusting, or what sort of a monster would do this? And every time Brad Pitt says something like, he's a crazy dude, Morgan Freeman's like, I think you're doing him a disservice <laughs> to describe him as being a crazy person. This person is cold and calculated and so far ahead of us. He's very, very intelligent. Brad Pitt's like, no, he's he's a crazy person. He's murdering and torturing people. I don't want to go so far as to say he's crazy. <laughs> I, I think what I think all that's happening all that's happening there in the script is obviously uh, John Doe is set up as the mirror of Somerset. So if Somerset had gone at some point a little bit crazy earlier in his life, he could have ended up as John Doe. Um, and if John Doe wasn't so crazy, he might have ended up as Detective Somerset. Um, you know, they're yeah, basically just kind maybe. of trying to tell you that they're both as intelligent as each other. Um, but also, you know, there are a few leaps that this film just has to make. And I think the whole library book thing, it sounds like it sounds kind of when you're watching the film for the first time and Mark Boone Jr. shows up and you're like, you know, that guy's super shady. He also acted in the the game as well for um, for David Fincher as well. And, um, you know, like you say, he was also in Memento and uh, and, you know, he's he's been in a few films for Nolan as well in between. He's he's basically like, a, mm-hmm. you know, he's been in. He's played a kind of like skeezy cop in a ton of different films. Um, it, yeah, he's in Sons of Anarchy as well. Yeah, uh, and he he was he was a he was a corrupt detec- he was a corrupt detective in Too Fast Too Furious as well. So I'm looking for his return to that franchise at some point in the future. Um, Sarah, he was in one of the movies we did on. Um, he was in one of the movies we did on Media Evil. He was. What and, movie? Yeah, I that's it's gone from my head because I remember saying it to you about him it was like oh he's the corrupt cop because i only know him as he's the corrupt cop from <laughs> batman begins yeah is he's he a bad guy in something knows. else he's a, he's a bad guy in something else okay and i remember you saying and he did sons of anarchy for like 119 episodes or something i've never seen an episode of sons of anarchy so i don't know I, he's it definitely Char- it wasn't he's in, charlie hunnam was it no no it's not <laughs> but it, it could be it, it could be something like that um he's also in an episode of uh Back to the Fu- or not Back to the Future, um, Quantum Leap that I did on Don Gillenmeister's prod- podcast. Mm. He's he plays a character called Mad Dog. <laughs> oh, I think I saw that episode. So um, yeah, it's just it's a, it's just a weird thing that he's. I don't think I've ever seen him when he's not an evil character. Uh, yeah, he was even on uh, Last Man on Earth for like four episodes where he played a person who was trying to kill all the protagonists and he got he got shot in the head and then, you know, his his body was like thrown off a, a like a, a boat or something. So like, yeah, he's he's always kind of, you know, this kind of skeezy person. Uh, he's also his name's on the opening credits and he's like in this film for like 30 seconds, uh, which I, I love about seven as well. Everybody's on the opening credits, basically, even if you, you only say one line. Uh, but yeah, so they make this jump very quickly to get to the whole, you know, the government is is monitoring library books. Um, and obviously John Doe, being a, a good citizen that he is, is using his local library to rent out all these books <laughs> and just make it easy for the detectives to catch him. 
which I think is funny because obviously, you know, up until this point, everything has been very carefully planned out. Each of these sins, you know, like the, the shards in the, the stomach of gluttony led to the back of the refrigerator, which led to the note, which, you know, then obviously, you know, greed uh, led to sloth. So like he's, you know, he's been, everything's been very carefully planned out. And then, you know, we get to the point where it basically, um, it feels like, like the people who were reading the scripts probably said to um, Andrew Kevin Walker, can we speed things up a little bit? <laughs> can we, can we, can we get to some sins just a tiny bit quicker? Uh, it's worth saying there's a whole bunch of stuff cut out with um, a priest uh, telling both Somerset and Mills about various sins and what they mean and all this. Like there's so many scenes in abandoned churches and non-abandoned churches that all got cut out of the script because it was just unnecessary. You just have to make Somerset the most intelligent detective who ever lived. And you, you've skipped. You don't need <laughs> right. to bring a priest in to tell us about the seven deadly sins at this particular point. Um, and then we do get the only scene that, you know, would be, you know, wouldn't be out of place in you know in in like a lethal weapon film or some other kind of buddy cop because obviously uh, when andrew kevin walker wrote this script he did conceive it as being like a buddy cop film but extremely serious um mm. and obviously that is the that's uh-huh. the dynamic that is immediately set up between brad pitt and uh and david and uh you know uh, morgan freeman um worth saying as well as i don't know why but for the entire film brad pitt seems to have some kind of eye makeup thing going on and, and i i don't know what that is i don't know <laughs> if it's just his beautiful eyes or um, but it always seems to me like he's got something going on with his eyes that it's it's almost like he's putting like a little bit of mascara on there to uh, make them pop while he's uh, doing his detecting. Um, he also seems very concerned with his hair. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, Brad Pitt is not eating anything in this film. It's uh, it's unfortunate because I, I... yeah, he should be he should be snacking. Yeah, away like he a, should be th- like it's an Ocean's Eleven. Yeah, he should be he should have a bag of something open and should just be eating it. You know, in, I guess that that only works with a confident Brad Pitt character. Um, you know, when he's not confident, he can't just be eating on the job. Um, but yeah, so like I say, that the whole story about, you know, the flag books and the FBI and all that kind of stuff. Originally, um, Somerset t- took him to an abandoned church. And uh, I, I I don't know. They looked at pictures of sin. It's, it's such a weird kind of choice. But uh, I, I can understand why Andrew Kevin Walker did it in the original script. But after like... You know, once you start to cut it out, once you start to look at what the film actually needs, you don't need that many abandoned churches. Uh, there was also a lot of stuff with um, John Doe driving around what is described in the scripts as the porno district. Um, so I'm, I'm guessing Andrew Kevin Walker had a very specific. I, again, that's that feels like Times Square, basically, in the in the 70s. Like it feels like that's what he was kind of yeah. imagining. Um uh, but yeah, and then we get the chase. Uh, you know, uh, in, interestingly, in the original script, um, John Doe was uh, dual wielding Uzis. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot. <laughs> yeah. For just a dude to have at his apartment. Yeah, apparently the like the original kind of description of like when they when when John Doe sees them, he basically pulled out two Uzis from behind his back and just started shooting. That he was just carrying to go grocery shopping. <laughs> yeah. And and obviously that like immediately they kind of threw that out and they were like no 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 that just can't you can't be running around with oozes in an apartment building so they took that out they took that out of the script quite quickly um, and this is the part of the film where Brad Pitt injured himself on set um, attempting to br- like break a car window um, for an earlier scene he he injured his arm and so in this in this scene we get like um, you know he gets shot in the arm. 
um, and then he's armed in a sling for the rest of you know this scene basically. Uh, and I think some of the other scenes were shot earlier in the in the in the shoot. So I think I have a feeling actually the the chase was one of the final things that David Fincher did because it's kind of a big set piece that he he hadn't really done before. And so he was like, you know, let's save it until we've got some kind of stunt stuff going on. You know, like they had to kind of plan it all out. And so it's fortunate that he injured himself later on in the shoot. Um, so his arm isn't, you know, really out of action that much in the rest of the film. Um, and uh, this scene and the scene after it, I I find maybe it's maybe it's the limitation of uh, of Fincher's style because he hasn't he hasn't done movies like this. Or maybe it's just the expectation of watching it now um, in, in you know, post-2010 where everything has to become clever and meta, is nobody is at all worried about booby traps at all. Like, and nobody's worried yeah. about somebody just sneaking around and being around the corner because Brad Pitt is rushing after him and he's checking his corners and stuff. But, like, there are lots of movies now where if the cop comes running down the corridor... The bad guy's just standing at the next corner, and as soon as he pops around the corner, he shoots him. Yeah, you know we've all, we've all seen movies where that's in, in play, where that's not in in this particular movie. And then when John Doe escapes, and they go into his apartment, they're just wandering around, opening up cupboards, and they're opening up things, and they're reading his journals. And the phone rings, and they run over and pick up the phone straight away. Now, I don't know how many movies I've seen where a phone rings or something goes off in the house and the SWAT guys wander over and then suddenly they get blown up. Yeah, I mean, I think that's more with mobile phones, isn't it? When you have the IED type things, Um, you know, so... But yeah, it is is kind of weird how trusting everybody is. (laughs) Just like... (laughs) running around and being like oh yeah you know like uh, we'll we'll just you know follow this guy uh into the rain the non-stop rain of seven um which which was yeah. done purposely uh so that they could shoot whenever they needed to outside without having to worry about weather control um uh so yeah i i, I mean i like the chase sequence again like you know it's the kind of like you say brad pitt checks his corners then he goes around the corner and you know John Doe shoots and then he, he kind of follows him and he shoots and he follows it. <laughs> it's just kind of, and then they end up in the rain. And then of course uh, we get kind of like, I don't know, probably one of the more kind of well-known scenes in the film, which is when Brad Pitt is kind of, you know, looking at a kind of rainy uh, Kevin Spacey. Obviously we don't know it's Kevin Spacey at this point. And he's got his gun up to his temple and, you know, there's just kind of the blood pouring down and I don't know, it's just such a beautiful shot. Um, and then he kind of, you know, decides yeah. not to kill him. <laughs> and then, um, obviously, mm-hmm. if you've seen the film before, you kind of realise that maybe John Doe is like, okay, I think I can work with this. <laughs> like, I, you know, mm-hmm. he's he, obviously he's already he's already seen the two detectives who are working on this case, and Mills made the mistake of yelling his name out at him. Um, so yeah. I, I think it's funny that he sees him again, and he's like. You know, obviously, we'll find out in a you know in a, during the phone call that takes place that he was puzzled as to how they managed to find his house. You know, like he wasn't expecting that; that he didn't plan for that. Um, and I, I love, I love that he's like, "I'm going to have to move my plans up," which almost feels like someone at the studio saying, "Speed this thing up. Let's get to them. Let's get to them next few scenes pretty quick." Um, you know, yeah. The bit, um, the bit with, uh, with them having met him before. So it's after they come out after finding sloth there's a reporter on the stairs and Brad Pitt chases him away and gives him his yeah. name, shouts his name. It's so Mills, M-I-L-L-S, right? <laughs> and But he then turns to Morgan Freeman and this is one of the reasons why I was 
and every time I watch him, I'm like, oh, Freeman is in on this. It's because he says to Freeman, how did he get here so fast? And the first thing that would come into my head, again, having, you know, in a 2019 sensibility, I'm sitting there going, well, maybe he got there so fast because he already knew that they were going to be there. You know what I mean? Like, that there's a reason why he's there so fast. Take that guy in for questioning. Don't just look at him and go, he's got a camera, therefore he's in the press. Yeah. Like, take him aside. Like, that's what would happen, I said, even in something as, as simple as an NCIS episode. Who's this guy? He's in the building when he shouldn't be and we're not expecting him to be. Take him in for questioning. What's the worst that can happen? You can take anybody in off the street for 12 hours. Right. So what's the worst that would have happened if took him in? But Morgan Freeman then says, he, they pay for tips from the police. And then it's just kind of washed their hands. And later on, we find out this thing. And every time that happens, I go, ah. <laughs> Uh, Freeman maybe Freeman's in this because especially when you consider that the two of them are standing in a corridor the guys at the end of it it's a corridor yeah right now if you're in a corridor and you've got a gun and fire off six shots logically you might think to yourself at least one of those shots will hit one of the two people standing in the corridor and he manages to miss so every time I watch that I go no, I don't think he's aiming to. I think he's aiming to miss. He shoots <laughs> high and wide in both cases in every case with those with that gun so like even the, the when he shoots at the window when Brad Pitt sticks his head out the window, I'm saying he's standing 15 feet away. Brad Pitt's got his head framed in a window. If you're standing with a gun in it, you'd expect to put one center of the window and not hit the frame four times. So yeah, I'm sorry. Like even the more I think about, it, I've decided Freeman was in it. Poor Somerset. They pay well, is what he says. He says they, you know, they obviously they pay well. Yeah. Uh, which I think is meant to indicate, like, um, at the because at the previous scene, um, you know, at, at, um, at Greed, uh, there were tons of reporters, and like they were there almost straight away. Um, and then mm-hmm. you know, obviously, once once Sloth gets taken away, there's also reporters. Once they exit the building, there's you know. So I think basically Morgan Freeman is saying, look, you know, we we pay the press, they turn up, we we do the little press conferences. Um, like they did, and obviously, obviously um, Shaft is there saying, um, you know, they've got their best man on the case, just as Brad Pitt's staring at greed <laughs> written on the floor, and he's like, oh, I guess I'm the best man then. Um, so, so like, I, I think there's meant to be this thing of, like, throughout the film, there are, like, press conferences that take place, and some of the information of the murders is in the press straight away, and I think that this is the film saying, oh, well, that's because the police tell them, and you know, so just so as a viewer, you're not meant to be going, well, how did they know about, like, these, these murders? Like, how are they suddenly in the papers and like there's a whole there's a whole lot of stuff that the press is doing that would seem to be like like you know uh, for convenience in terms of the plot but you know i think this is just a way to explain that but also then to set up the fact that you know once they get into his apartment um and i kind of i kind of love how brad pitt is just like kicks the door in and he's just like well you know it's open now so i I guess we've got to go in like he's (laughs) It just fell open yeah. like this. Yeah, like I, I just, I just kind of, I kind of love his, his kind of sheepish. Well, you know, I accidentally kicked the door in, but who cares? It's open now. Let's get in there. Um, yeah, well, Somerset then says to him, "You are so fucking stupid." <laughs> 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 because that definitely also raises some like real like. Shouldn't you have just waited like an hour and gotten a warrant issues? Or how about you do the exact same thing you did, which is go down and pay. Uh, a junkie down one of the side alleys to say that, that she has information to think that this might be John Doe, yeah. right? Boom. Right. Pay her, 
get that done before you walk up and don't kick the door in. Well, I also kind of love how because she... Get a warrant to begin with. She goes into business for herself towards the end as well. <laughs> She's like... Oh, one of the murders <laughs> happened over here. And he's like, yeah, 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 you get it, don't you? You, you, you understand? Yeah, yeah. She, she, you know, like, I, I love the kind of push, pushing him away and being like, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, <laughs> don't... But the reason I'm saying... The reason I'm saying that uh, they could have just waited to do that is because he kicks the door in. He takes three steps in. Somerset goes, you're the stupidest person. And then he turns around and goes... How much money do we have? And then we cut to him paying the junkie and the junkie's talking to a regular um, blue uniform. Yeah. So so they didn't actually go in and explore at that point. like Because then we cut to them after that scene happens. They're exploring the room that they've just kicked in. So you're there going, so what was the point in you kicking the door in, Brad Pitt? Like you literally were just being I, an asshole. I think it's meant to demonstrate that if like when Somerset does stuff like that, when Somerset bribes someone, he thinks ahead. And he's like, I'm going to call Mark Boone Jr. and I'm going to bribe him for this information. Whereas Brad Pitt kicks the door in and then goes, uh, wait there a second. I think I can cover this if I bribe someone. Like, I think it's just meant to show the difference between their thought processes is that, you know, Morgan Freeman bribes some literally in like the scene before he bribes someone before doing the act. Whereas Brad Pitt bribes them afterwards because he isn't really thinking as straight as he should. Um, or he back in, before in, thinking. Yeah. Upstate New York, that's the kind of police <laughs> duty stuff that will get you through. In New York, you have to play stuff. But yeah, I like as well how the actress who who gives the story is described as thin vagrant, um, and the police officer is described yeah. as policeman who takes statement from vagrant, uh, <laughs> which are two two great roles. Um, and then I also I love how immediately they have like the sketch artist there, and, and Brad Pitt just gives like a really vague. I mean, he barely saw anything. It doesn't look anything like John. <laughs> yeah. It does not at all. I was just thinking that it's like I mean, also like it just like it looks like this like nondescript white dude, which to be fair is actually kind of how I would describe well, Kevin. Funnily enough, but in the script there was actually a couple of lines where someone was like, "Oh, great! Now every single like basically every single like generic white dude is going to be like you know kind of hassled by the police because of this like that, we're going to get tons of tips about these generic white dudes that people have seen." So the kind of oh yeah, that's a real problem. yeah. So like well, th- like the vagueness of the sketch was actually alluded to in the script, but they kind of cut a couple of lines there because Brad Pitt just goes, "Yeah, yeah, that's great," and just kind of moves on to the next thing. Um, <laughs> But I do, I do, I mean, you know, obviously this apartment is, like, just insane in terms of production design. Like, the amount of effort they put into this, um, you know, there are literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books on those shelves um, that were all made by hand. Um, and every single one of them has writing on every single page. There is not a single empty page on any of those books. Um, oh, yeah, wow. They- I definitely would have assumed that some number of them were actually blank. Nope. Literally, Morgan Freeman could have walked over to any of those books and started reading what was in them, and there was something there. Uh, it took two months and uh, $15,000 for those books to be made. Um, and, yeah, wow. and, and the kind of the making, the, like the hand making of some of those books obviously is what forms the opening titles. Um, some of the kind of production mm-hmm. they did backstage on making those, they kind of filmed it, um, you know, for like a making of at the time. And David Finch was like, let's use those in the titles. <laughs> like, let's pretend that the opening <laughs> titles are basically being made by John Doe. And, you know, that's the kind of the thing that he would do. Um, so, yeah, those books are amazing. There's a whole kind of behind the scenes thing where they show you every single book, basically. And they're like, he literally could have picked any book off the shelf. 
obviously what he would have said would have always been the same because it's the lines that were in the script anyway of the you know what six sad puppets mm-hmm. we are and all that kind of like that all of that was was kind of always what he's going to say but he could have literally read anything out of any of those books um and people just basically spent like two months writing uh, covering every single page with words um as much yeah. as they can would have been so cool if he if he'd pulled it out and opened it and was like Oh my god, this sick fuck. <laughs> wait, 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 why do you call you sick fuck? It says here he likes to dip pickles in chocolate. Ah, <laughs> oh, you monster. Yeah. Also, by the way, also... speaking of pip- pickles and chocolate, your wife's pregnant. Uh, I will say also, from these books, I think the most unrealistic thing in this movie is that apparently somebody on the New York subway tried to make small talk with him. <laughs> yeah. Also, it does, like, the whole thing about... Um, uh, sloth like the whole reason why he got mad at sloth uh, is because apparently he saw this person outside but obviously detective somerset says well this guy was clearly a shut-in so how would he have ever run into yeah. sloth so there's you know there's a couple of little errors here and there but i don't know i think yeah. i think john doe probably just knocked on someone's like a few people's doors or maybe he saw him get his newspaper one day and he was like i don't like that guy i'm gonna kill him by force feeding him <laughs> spaghetti um but yeah i yeah this the whole kind of all this i get i think again that that story of someone trying to make small talk comes from andrew kevin walker living in new york and someone doing that to him and him being like what is going on here i don't like um you know so i I, you know i guess um you know if if people don't make small talk with you on the underground then you are the crazy person making small talk i guess uh, is how you figure that one out, um, but yeah, I I know I love I love kind of Morgan Freeman's kind of casual delivery of everything that's written in these books and all kind of like the way he reads them as they're written down, like just all kind of stream of consciousness and you know the kind of like all the, the kind of the stuff. I don't know. I get it. I, the funny thing is it kind of it feels like it's younger than the character that we eventually see. Like these feels like the kind of ramblings of like a kind of maybe a teenager or someone in their early twenties. They don't they don't feel like the John Doe that we meet at the end. That's the only thing I would say about yeah, these books. It, they, it feels like the ramblings of an incel, Darren. Well, true. Yes, exactly. Um, but yeah, so uh, I mean, I guess in between cutting off all of his fingerprints, he's got to do something with his spare time. So you know. <laughs> and it does actually say that the books are in no discernible order and there are so yeah. many of them it's very possible that he has been you know doing this since he was in his teens yeah although they do mention that his later on you know not to spoil it but his like the information they've got the oldest information they've got from him only goes back five years um so there's maybe an implication that he's had this apartment for five years and so these are his ramblings for mm-hmm. the last five years that are on the shelves um and i kind of love how um you know Basically, Mills is like, well, this is how we catch him. We've got to read all these books and we'll find out what the next, where the next murder is. Whereas Somerset's like, no, no, no. If we had men reading in like 24-hour shifts, we wouldn't get through this thing for years. Um, yeah, it would still take two months yeah. or whatever if you had 50 men reading 24 hours Yeah, a day. so he, he, kind of, he kind of does some quick math on it. But then it doesn't matter because John Doe gives him a call. Uh, and then it's like, you know, I don't know why you're at my apartment, but I'm going to start killing people now and I'm going to start doing it quicker than I was expecting to do. Um, although it's worth saying, obviously, at this point, we're up to, uh, you know, Friday in terms of the week. And this film takes place over seven days and there are seven sins. And so I, it's, it's weird because it almost seems like he planned on doing these murders, like getting them discovered or whatever in the space of a week. But then he says he's got to move up his plans. Um and so, I don't know, maybe he was going to kill the next two people tomorrow, but instead he's going to kill them tonight. I don't, like, I don't know what his plans previously <laughs> well, were. Maybe, maybe what he jumped to, I, I was thinking that th- 
like I was thinking about this when you were saying it, is that I have to move things up. Maybe he decides at that point he's going to kill Gwyneth Paltrow and have himself then be the seventh victim because maybe that wasn't his original plan. Yeah. It does feel like there's a bit so, of... as in, I've moved it up and I'm going to have to get people I have access to. Even though I have this other stuff planned, I'm going for you because I know you're the kind of hot-headed cop who's going to do something stupid. Yeah, can you, can you imagine right. whoever his previous Envy victim was? He's probably sitting in an apartment tied up somewhere, like, envying something. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, when's he coming Like, one, one day they're back? going to, like, eventually, like, some landlord's going to show up and, like, like because they're not paying the rent anymore. <laughs> yeah. He's like, I was just sitting here envying stuff for some reason. I don't know. Like, um, yeah, so it does. This model tenant was uh, turned out to not be so great. <laughs> yeah. Because I do also, by the way, like that the uh, apparently the sloth guy is described as a model tenant because he is very quiet. <laughs> yeah. And always pays his rent on time. Paid his rent on time. No complaints. There you go. Model tenant. That's that's who everybody wants to rent to. Uh, a guy tied to a bed, slowly starving. Uh, yeah, who has chewed out his own tongue? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, he's not gonna. I mean, I think it was. It's funny because I would love if, like, um, it, maybe John Doe had a different plan, and his original plan was just to play some loud music, just a tiny bit too loud, so someone would complain and he'd get discovered. But uh, instead, he was like, no, 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 no one's gonna notice that. Um, I'm gonna cut off some hand and then write help, <laughs> and then have Orly Aramy go. That's our guy. <laughs> He wrote help in his or help in his own fingerprints. Yeah, that's that's our killer, a guy who hides the words "help me." Um, yeah, so I mean, that's kind of pretty much where we finish. Is you know, with uh, you know, we've got a sketch of the sketch artist. Obviously, they look at what will become you know the victim for lust. Uh, although we we never see that. Oddly enough, lust is the one victim we don't really see. Uh, we only see the method by which uh, lust was killed. Um, and obviously Leland Orsick gives a wonderful performance. <laughs> kind of just... yeah. He's such a creepy dude. <laughs> yeah. I'm also fine that that's all that we see of Lust, personally. Yeah, I, I, obviously, you know, that was. I think that was done for reasons that the MPAA wouldn't have passed the film if it had anything kind of more explicit. Yeah. But also, Finch is not a guy who's, you know, going to go and do stuff that's that explicit. Even in this film, you know, we don't actually see Greed as a victim. We only see photographs of you know, what he looked like when they've discovered him at the scene, you know, like mm-hmm. we just see greed on the floor. Like, so, you know, does uh, even up until this point, even though this is a film that has, you know, kind of very explicit kind of murder and stuff, there are, there are certain things that Fincher chooses not to show anyway. Um, but yeah, so uh, do you have any other thoughts on these scenes? Is there anything else you feel we need to cover? I think this is the most interesting bit of the movie. Um, yeah, I agree. I think because if you take, even if you take the, the, the 10 minutes with Sloth out, I think the rest of the stuff that goes around it, seeing how the police interact with each other, seeing how gung ho the SWAT guys are to get this guy, like they're they're definitely up for going in guns blazing and blowing them away. Seeing how Somerset is really, you know, almost admiring at this point, the character who's going on. We get to see uh, Brad Pitt over. There's there's one scene we didn't really talk about where he's sitting talking to Somerset when they decide to go looking for the books. And as you said earlier about that, it's awkward. It must be hard to act opposite Morgan Freeman. So Morgan Freeman has been Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt is all tits <laughs> and all like fidgeting right. and like, oh, I've got, got to get this done. And all like, they're like going, and Morgan Freeman's like, what was that you said? Seven deadly sins. Mm, you're right. Perhaps <laughs> we look up books. And then Brad Pitt's like, books? How are books going to help? And they're going, 
oh my god like you're, you're <laughs> such a frat boy but um yeah i think i generally i think it's the most interesting i think it moves the movie forward from slow paced really really dour almost procedural to a 25 minute action sequence yeah and then we're into the end of the movie yeah um i also just uh, very much wanted to add in that i love the line which is actually the line that gives morgan freeman his aha moment which is brad pitt saying just because the fucker's got a library card doesn't make him yoda (laughs) yeah Uh... (laughs) Um, which is great for so many reasons including that his just immediate go-to this is the smartest person i can think of is yoda it's funny as well because this Um... film doesn't have that many kind of cultural references that date it in any way um, it, apart yeah. from uh, the very, very beginning of the scene, and I didn't mention this, but Ali Ermi wakes the two of them up by saying, wake up Glimmer Twins. And that's a reference to the Rolling Stones. And I don't know why he calls them the Glimmer mm. Twins. I guess it's just a thing that, that uh, you know, the scriptwriter wanted to do. But it's just, I love that it kind of casts Ali Ermi's, like, character as being, like, a huge Rolling Stones fan. The fact that he calls them the Glimmer Twins as he, like, wakes them <laughs> up. And you're just like, how are they, like, Mick Jagger and, and uh, what's his face, who's, you know... Uh, the basis for Johnny Depp's character in Pirates of the Caribbean. His name escapes me. Uh, Oh, Keith Richards. Keith Richards. Like, how are they like Keith? They're not anything, but I don't know. It's just a weird line that just suddenly, (laughs) they kind of move on from it straight away. It would make more sense if, as in the original script, Morgan Freeman was actually 45 um, because his character was meant to be a lot younger um, and basically Mm. retiring after getting his 20 rather than being on the force for 35 years (laughs) so uh, they kind of aged the character up to match Morgan Freeman but I don't know it's just a weird kind of like Rolling Stones reference gets thrown in out of nowhere and also then obviously the reference to Yoda as well like it, this is not a film that has that many kind of like cultural stuff, so it's it's kind of weird to right. have, and not in that the fact is like at this point as well, Star Wars there hadn't been a, like in ninety five there hadn't been a Star Wars film in like a decade. 20, 23 years. Right, yeah, because it's exactly, oh no, sorry, it's, thirteen. Years, yeah, so yeah. it's but then yeah, and then it's four years before the first of the prequels comes out. But then also the re-release of the original trilogy happened like in ninety seven, didn't it? So it's it's just before Star Wars is kind of back into the kind of public conscious. So it's it's really weird. I don't. What are you talking about? The re-release star? Yeah, yeah, the, the, the special. Yeah, this is blanked from uh, my yeah, memory. This, my my VHSs of the original are, are still still good to Funnily go. Funnily enough, I the the Christmas before this film came out, Christmas '95, I bought the uh, the the original trilogy uh, in its original VHS form because obviously there's still some things that have been changed between <laughs> between that and those. Did it come in? The, did it come right. in the gold box? No, it it came. It, it had uh, the writing on the outside was red. It was three separate VHSs that I bought. Um, oh, cool. And those are the ones that I watch uh, when I want to watch Star Wars <laughs> um, because, yeah. you know, they are still the original versions of the film. But yeah, so. Yeah, I, I, I still have mine in the, in the in the gold tree video boxes. Oh, but they're the ones thing. that just slipped and out the, the bottom, like the slip cases. They just yeah. slipped out yeah. the bottom, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's not as good as having the plastic <laughs> casing, but it's also just good to have them and not have to put up with, you know. All the changes. Standing on. On Jabba the Hutt's yeah. tail. It's 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 right. funny though that like he throws a Yoda reference in because like I say it's like it's not like Star Wars was really that big in the public consciousness at this time, but then obviously yeah. you know twenty something years later all of those references seem you know a lot fresher. Um, but yeah, so well I feel that we've covered this minutes pretty well I would say. Uh, so so uh, let's go to plugs and uh, I don't know either one of you can plug whatever you want to plug at this point uh, yeah so I'll go ahead um, 
So I have a podcast, Media Evil, which Ali, uh, up until now, has been the co-host of. He uh, sadly has uh, retired for the time being. Um, we we had a co-host. massive falling out, Darren. This is so awkward. You booked the two of us on this podcast at the same time. Because we just hate each other now. She's the worst. <laughs> Um, no, we are, we do not have a falling out, but we are, uh, no longer currently co-hosts. So, uh, I had just, I have a podcast at Media Evil, um, where I talk about medieval movies because I'm a medieval historian and sometimes TV shows and books and talk about mostly why they are wrong. So you can, uh, find us, uh, at Media Evil Pod on Twitter. Um, and you can also, uh, we have a Facebook group for, uh, if you just search Media Evil on Facebook, you should be able to find the Facebook group there. Um, and then you can also find, uh, should I do the me on social media now as well? Or um, you can also find me on social media at Sarah F. Decker on Twitter and Instagram. And Ollie? Well, I, I no longer podcast. Just my, my time just got absolutely wiped out with, uh, with various personal things going on. So that's why I had to stop. So I used to do a podcast called Best Acquaintances with uh, my best friend, Emily, uh, where we'd interview people from the internet. So that's where I met Sarah. It's also where I met Darren. So they both come on and we basically we would talk to people. That podcast is still out there. If anyone wants to go back and listen to old episodes, you can. They're always interesting. And I had a great time doing Media Evil for a long time with Sarah. I think we, we got up to 20 episodes or something before yeah. I had to bail. So um, yeah, so if you want to go listen to the first 20 20 episodes or as i like to call them the best 20 episodes <laughs> of uh, of media evil you can go and listen to me there but uh, as at the time being I'm, I'm i'm too busy to be uh to be actually podcasting properly but if you want to just find me on facebook you can uh completely be ignored by me <laughs> at uh, ollie brady it's pretty simple <laughs> And of the many podcasts that I have produced today, I am going to be plugging How to Lose a Guy in 10 episodes, uh, which I believe Ollie appeared on one of those episodes, uh, one of the 10. Yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. Uh, so you can find that uh, on any, you know, podcast uh, whatevers. And I'm sure you can also find it on Twitter, although I don't think there's any point because basically the whole project finished like in one day. So there's, there's no point trying to tweet at it or anything <laughs> like, you know. Uh, well, thanks to both of you for being my guests here today. An absolute Thank pleasure. you so much for having us on. And otherwise, goodbye. Bye. Bye. Bye.